As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to another episode of So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my loyal co-host, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Always good. I'm very, very glad to hear that. So, this is a board gaming podcast about board games, internationally rena- well, okay, internationally available, and we'll be talking about the game we reviewed roughly a year ago, the Eurus, the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment. We are fond of acronyms here at SWAG. Yeah. We're going to be talking about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And that will be one of the briefer segments on this week's episode. And we're going to be talking about our topic, which I proposed in honor of Arkhipov Day and more on that later. And that is Reckoning with War, specifically a discussion of presentation of war and board games. This is something I think a lot about. And Walker, very kindly, is going to be humoring me by allowing us to discuss this topic. It's a very light and humorous topic. Yes. Good for some yucks. So on the topic of lighthearted, pleasant, and not altogether too self-serious, let us talk about the game we reviewed last year, Walker. What did we review last year? <laughs> I will say this. I was reminded of the very best contribution that Hate gave to the board game sphere, and that was that brilliant video for Root, where they were making fun of the video for Hate. That That's was so marvelous. True. So Hate was a skirmishy thing yes, from, with, from Cool Me or Not? Yeah, if you wanted generic humans fighting... 15 other types of generic humans, <laughs> then hate was your game. It's weird because I've been thinking a lot lately, and I'll be talking about this again later, how much enthusiasm I have for skirmish games and how I'll happily play even relatively generic skirmish games. Hate was the limit. Hate was the one that was just on the on the, on the side of, eh, doesn't do enough for me. On the cusp. This was cool many or not going to Adrian Smith and saying, what else you got for us? <laughs> Yeah, but it looked fantastic. Like, I, you know, the bad things I have to say to be hate, I can't say anything. The, the train was amazing. I loved the figures, even though, like I said, I just made fun of the fact that they're all humans. I just loved that post-apocalyptic, you know, we're going to run at each other and beat the crap out of each other type scenario. It's weird. I just sort of, I mean, not that it was directly related to anything the Games Workshop has ever put out, but anything within striking distance of corn. Or that kind of barbaric kind of rampaging marauder type thing just doesn't interest me in a very real way. We were actually just talking about Warcry, the Games Workshop skirmish game that we reviewed almost a year ago or so. And it similarly had most of the gangs being like, well, these are the guys who put heads on pikes. Well, these are the guys who put faces on shields. It's, uh, it's uh, whatever. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> these are the bad guys. These are the badder yes. guys. And so hate is the kind of thing that was probably a little f about five years too late because, you know, it had a campaign system and, and all those other things, which, which I'm sure people would have been ravel that ravenously enthusiastic about a little bit before. I, I will give it credit for one thing, though. For a generic skirmishy game, they made it so that everybody started off 
facing off against each other. So you didn't have those sort of, well, I move five spaces and maybe next turn I'll move to engage you sort of deal a la Warcry. So that is at least one thing they got right. Other than that, it was just generic, and I, I haven't thought about it since we reviewed it. Well, there's a couple of re- I just have the two reasons why. It's, it was a Kickstarter only, right? And then the, and the fact that there was no follow-up, right? So when it did finally release, they didn't do like a sort of like mini campaign, say, oh, here's an expansion for, for hate, and you can order the game again. So, you know, give people another opportunity to buy it. There was no second opportunity. So it was like... That's not true. You could buy it during the Time Machine Kickstarter. Oh, was it? Okay. Yes, but the, the the Time Machine Kickstarter definitely wasn't interested in generating buzz or hype or enthusiasm for any of the things they were selling. Like they, even the popular, well-selling products that they were selling there, like some of the Zombicide versions and certainly Rising Sun, they had some complete pledges left over there. It was just a clearinghouse event. They weren't interested in pumping or promoting anything, really. So that's one reason why probably hate doesn't get the love that it should get or might have got otherwise just because it's not available. Yeah, let's say might have instead of should. Yes, might have. <laughs> I think hate got about as much attention as it deserved. Exactly. <laughs> and that is the game reviewed exactly one year ago. Precisely. Now, on to the games we played this week. Mark, both you and I played The Darkest Night. Second edition. So... Was I... I you, have, you have second edition? Yeah. I have I have handcuffy, the handcuff edition. Sure. Uh, it's that too. It's just to be clear. The first time they thought the night was darkest, it wasn't the, the actually the darkest. It was it, just semi dark. It was it, it, well, it was pretty dark. But they had to wait for the second edition for it to be actually the darkest. Ooh. None more dark. Gotcha. None more dark. Yeah, the darkness goes to eleven. So in this game, you're going to be taking an entire action just to move. You're going to take entire actions. To move back to the church so you can take yet another entire action to get some health back and then another entire action to move back to where you want to do something. You're constantly getting beat down. It's awfully grindy, but it does have some some good points as well. So it's a co-op fantasy adventure thingy. It does do a little bit of good work differentiating itself thematically because this isn't post-apocalyptic, but it's after the bad guys have won. It's after the evil necromancer has succeeded in conquering the local kingdom. And as a result, it, it, it leads to some interesting mechanical differences. You care about being secret and hidden because you're very much in the minority. You're fighting more or less a guerrilla war. This isn't a coin game by any stretch of the imagination. But you care about secrecy. You care about remaining undetected. And you have to be very, very careful about surgical actions because otherwise you're going to get in serious trouble. Now, sometimes that manifests itself in very interesting thematic and mechanical things. And sometimes that results in spending your entire action just to move. And the only other game that I can remember where you would spend your entire action just to move, and it rankled me then, too, was Shadows Over Camelot. That was one of the things I didn't like about that game, because it, it feels awful. It just doesn't feel satisfying in a game to spend your entire turn in a game like this to move. We are spoiled by more modern games like Hellboy, like Cthulhu Death May Die, or things like that, where it's like, you have three actions on your turn. Mix and match them as you please. Yeah, and then the fact that you have to move all the way back to the church to get your grace back, which is are your hit points slash everything that you use to do your special stuff. Yes. And they just don't give it back to you. You actually have to not only have to take an action to get it back, but then you're rolling dice and you may get it back. The Almighty's that not just going to hand it out for free, Walker. I'm just saying. If you got to work just, for it. If they just made that one change. <laughs> go there, you take an action, get your grace back. This is just a very pandemic-y game. Just so people know how it sort of played, like all, all these big uh, groups of monsters are going to start building up and all these different things. And you have to, you know, race around and keep them low or else, you know, they're going to build up back at the church and then you're going to lose. Yeah, you have to go and put out fires in various locations exactly. while you're on the side waiting to progress towards the victory conditions. And this is one of those instances where I saw the experience you were having and I completely understood. And this is actually going to lead to one of my good points about Darkest Night, because Walker played as the Crusader, and the Crusader is a character who spends grace, which is kind of sort of your hit points, to do awesome things. And sure enough, you did awesome things. And then you would have to carefully crawl back to the church to get your grace back. And that was a time-consuming process. I, on the other hand, was playing the Exorcist. The Exorcist has hardly any grace at all, but doesn't spend it. And spends most of his time completely shrouded in secrecy. His secrecy is through the roof. He's very difficult to find. And if you find him, he's got some protection stuff to run away. Which meant that I never had to do that. I never had to painstakingly crawl anywhere. I could go more or less where I wanted to go and expect to remain hidden. Which is unfortunate because I got to see Walker have frustrating turn after turn. It does, however, point to one thing that is 
a strength of Darkest Night. In the second edition, there are over 20 characters, and they are all very different. They all have their own deck of what are called power cards. And right from the start, you get to pick three, and there's a lot of excellent, excellent character differentiation. That, of course, is hardly rare in this design space, but, uh, you know, it's worth flagging. And that being also said is that mostly all the characters have a movement ability. A lot of us didn't know that it was a problem. Right. So we could have taken these movement enhancing abilities right from the get-go and probably would have, you know, smoothed over this difficulty from the beginning. Like, if we play it again, it probably won't be so bad. That's true. Partially, I just wish that the action system were a slightly more forgiving, and that wouldn't necessarily make the game easier if they then compensated with, with other aspects. So there's the fact that a lot of the movement is unsatisfying. I didn't like the way that, that dice worked. Again, slightly more modern designs have either custom dice that serve to mitigate the results somewhat, or you have some resource that allow you, allows you to re-roll, and usually these are baked into the system. Again, things like Hellboy things like Cthulhu Death May Die. And in Darkest Night, not infrequently, you would be rolling one or two D6s, and you're just flatly looking for a five or a six. And that's that's all you're doing, and there's nothing to be done about it. And again, this can lead to the same degree of balance, the same degree of probabilistic outcomes. It doesn't feel as satisfying as a player, at least not as far as I'm concerned. The things like, my turn is to search. All I do is I roll this die. I rolled a two. I'm done. That's my turn. And in a two to three hour game, which is more or less our, our experience borne out, that can wear down on you. It starts to feel a little bit grindy. So I liked a lot of aspects of Darkest Night, but at the end of the day, the overall package didn't impress very much. Yeah, it had a very feel of Grail, the other game we were playing, where you know you're you're playing like you say like you say you're the B squad, right? Right. All the bad stuff has happened, and you're just sort of trying to pick up the pieces and seeing what you can do to sort of eke out a life of with what's left. Yes. Yes. And that part was great. And when the gameplay was feeding into that, that was great. But when you're just trekking across country, very much like Tainted Grail, it's not playing to its strengths. Agreed. And this is a game by Jeremy Leonard and published by Victory Point Games. And it's the darkest night. We also got to play a game of Quantum. Quantum is a very, very light sci-fi-ish game, which has some of the trappings of some of your more elaborate empire ability stuff, but mostly it is about special powers of your fleet of ships, which are also dice, moving around your fleet of ships, which are also dice, and rolling dice to resolve combat between your fleets of ships, which are also dice. And it's very quick, very in-your-face, very cutthroat. It's the kind of game where you cannot let people get away with anything. You have to constantly be looking to see where people are going to be able to stake their next claim. But despite its simplicity, and despite how brutally confrontational it is, I quite like the flavor of the different special powers that come into the system, and also the vaguely puzzly nature of using your special ships. It's like, okay, I'm going to use this scout, and the scout's going to move real far, and then the scout's going to use its special ability, and then this other ship over here across the map is going to use its special ability to swap places with this new ship, and then I'm going to do something awesome. Well, I don't think it's, I don't, I think it's unfair to say vaguely. I think it's very puzzly, but in a fantastic way. Sure. And that's what I love about it. It really ramps up. Like, not only do you have the special abilities of your ships right away, but as soon as you start scoring some points, you're getting these pretty massive special abilities, which just ramp up it even more. And, you know, brings the end of the game to a crescendo at a, at, at a really good point. Or one-shots that really turn the game state on its head. 99% of the time in a game like this, even if they're balanced, you give me the choice between a comparatively weaker special ability and a much stronger one-shot, I am never going to pay any attention to the one-shots. Quantum, though, gets it right because of how quick and and fast-moving the turns are and how it's all about being extremely opportunistic and taking advantage of, you're quite right, these puzzly tactical situations. You have to pay attention to the one-shots as that is frequently the kind of thing that's going to eke out an advantage. Yeah, I agree. Quantum is this part of this little board game arena segment I had going here that games that play well, I think, on Board Game Arena. I really think that Quantum is one of them. I think it plays well on the platform and plays very well turn-based because of the puzzling natures that you can just sit and sort of get the most out of each turn. And, and the ships, because there's six different ships, so it's the six different sides of, of the dice, and they all have their different abilities, and they interact with each other, and 
I, I just love how it all works. You're right. The implementation is very good. If I were inclined towards asynchronous play, I think Quantum is a very, very good candidate for asynchronous play most of the time. There are only a couple of powers that might fiddle with that environment. It would also give you the time to reflect on the board state and know how to properly kneecap the leader because this is this is one of the, the, the structural elements of Quantum that's a little bit unfortunate. You have to go after the people who are just about to win. Now, sometimes you're able to use that to profit. Sometimes it's just unfortunate kingmaker, kingmaker situations and the kind of dynamic where you have to beat them down because otherwise the game is going to end prematurely, which is not when the game is playing to its strengths. There's no auto-balancing going on. There's no artificial or organic way to constrain the leader other than just outright aggression. And I'm not a huge fan of that element, but again, the game is quick. The game is engaging. It's clever. It's cute. So I'm, I, hard to, I find it hard to blame it too much for that. I was quite surprised, though, that in our adaptation... We, it took about 90 minutes to play on Board Game Arena, a four-game player, a four-player game, which is not, I think, a duration that Quantum wants to have. Now, this is, it was a first game for some of the players, and yes, there was a rules explanation. We were all getting used to the adaptation and so forth, but I guess file this under episode 503 if Mark complains about online games, but I was surprised at how long it took on Board Game Arena because, again, my first reaction was very much the same as yours. This is a very good adaptation. This shouldn't take very long at all. And then it took a little bit longer than I liked. Yeah, like I said, I think it was just the first game. And moving the ships is a little wonky just because they only move orthogonally and you think they can get somewhere where they can't. And and exactly how you implement the special abilities with the interface sometimes was wonky. But I think now that we've got it, it's pretty good. And this is by uh, Eric Zimmerman and put out by FunForge Quantum. So just go, I'm just going to do my little uh, board game arena segment here. So that's sure. a game that I feel that works well. Another game that I think works very well is Seven Wonders Duel. It's a game that I would only play on board game arena because there's this wonky, you know, set up this big tableau of cards and a pyramid. Some are face up, some are face down. And you do that in three different shapes for three different rounds that you can get a game off in like literally two minutes on board game arena really yeah when you're playing against somebody that knows and i've never played against one person took a little bit long but i think that was a a lag problem because of where they were they were from and it, it just goes back and forth so quickly i i meant to actually look up to see how many games i played seeing as i got a, like a 10 victory award thingy and I lost an awful lot, so I, I played at least you know twenty to twenty five games this week alone. Welcome just, to Walker's humble brag. Because I just started. No, no, it wasn't a brag. I just mean that <laughs> I lost. I'm sure I lost a lot more than I won. I'm just and I know I got ten wins, so I, it must this be. Is, this is gentle teasing, Walker. Gotcha. Some 25. some view, some viewers report that they enjoy this gotcha. aspect of our dynamic. So that Seven Wonders Duel it works very well. Another game that works really well. But this one only uh, live. I wouldn't play this turn-based. I'm going to go over some ones, some other games that don't work turn-based. This one's called Lucky Numbers. Came out uh, quite a while ago. This is just you're you know you're drawing cards of numbers between I believe it's one to twenty-five roughly, and they have to go in increasingly order in a four by four grid. So you're like sort of passing numbers that you don't want and rearranging and just trying to fill your card faster than the other player. And same sort of thing, you get a game off fairly quickly. Games that do not work well on Board Game <laughs> Arena. Any kind of auction game. Sure. Terrible on Board Game Arena, especially if it's turn-based, right? Say, so an auction breaks out, and then you got to wait for every player to increase bid or pass. Terrible. Keyflower, we try, I played it this week on Board Game Arena. Did not like it. Oh, that's I, a shame. I love Keyflower. Because I've been thinking of playing Keyflower online. But on turn-based, I mean, like, live would be fine. Oh, oh sorry, you're this talking is, strictly asynchronous. specifically asynchronous turn-based. Yes. Oh, okay, okay. Was not good. Okay, Mark, the crew. Painful. Really? Well, oh. Just because sure. you know, oh, all, geez. You do, all you do is playing a card, and then you're waiting. And then it comes up that, oh, it's your Oh, my goodness, you're right. And you sort of open up again. It's like, what's going and on in, again? And in many trick-taking games, whether they're co-op or whatever, very often it's a forced play. Yeah. That's just the nature of trick-taking games. So the notion of waiting and getting a notification that it's your turn, it's like, oh, this is the only yellow I have. Play. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Okay, I hear you. It was terrible. <laughs> anyway, that's my little update on Board Game Arena. Still waiting for that check. Very quickly, I have to go to the end of these because we're not leaving this out. Seven Wonders Duel, designer Antoine Boza, Bruno Cathala, put out by Repos Production. Keyflower, Sebastian Bayside, and Richard Breeze, put out by R&D Games. Then we have The Crew, Marco Arm Brewster, put out by Cosmos. And Lucky Numbers, Michael Shatt, published by Ravensburger. 
on the topic of skirmishy type things, it's been very much on my mind over the past few weeks because I, I love me some skirmish games. And I realized that last week I didn't play a single game designed by David Thompson. Crazy. A week without David Thompson is a mistake. It is. So I played For What Remains. I tracked down the final box of For What Remains. I am now $100 deep into my free review copy of For What Remains. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's a total drug deal right there, right? Yeah. You should do this like, to everybody. Say, hey, hey, got a game for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first days is free. <laughs> it's like, or it's like those old Columbia House records deals, right? They'll send you 13 records for a penny. <laughs> That's right. And then the next CD of the Eagles' greatest hits is $73. Anyhow, <laughs> I now have all three boxes of Fort Worth Reigns, which is, which is six factions. Honestly, I'm a little bit disappointed that you have to go in that deep to get six factions, because six factions is, you know roughly where you're getting at a, a really good variety of skirmish factions. And the factions in Fort Remains are really cool. And I was a little bit hopeful that it was going to do the thing that I always really like in fantasy and sci-fi universes, which is where they exert considerable effort to make them all appear to be the good guys, at least in their eyes. You know, no cartoonishly evil villains, just everyone's trying to do their own thing, and they have consistently expressed values. For what it's worth, the old fantasy universe of our clash, represented by Cadwallon, and confrontation back in Rackham. They did a brilliant job of this. Even the stereotypically evil undead necromancers, they went into great detail about why they thought they were the good guys. And it was all very plausible and cool. Anyway, turns out that the evil death-looking monsters, they eat babies. So, you know, they're, they're, they're evil death-looking monsters. Wow. Yeah. I d- I, double down on, on that yeah, evil. I was, I, I was hopeful that it was going to be the sort of, look, you came into our evil nether dimension and started exploiting our territories and now we're trapped on Earth. We're just trying to find a way to survive. Maybe they're evil babies? <laughs> I had not considered that possibility. I will have to ask or find out. Anyway, what did those babies do? <laughs> were they asking for it? Maybe they're time travelers and they know in the future what those babies are going to do. And there's, they're, they're cleansing the timeline. So I played more for what remains, trying out the factions, trying out the scenarios. The AI system remains an utter joy, leading to moments of genuine unpredictability and tactical trade-offs, the likes of which you might encounter against a live opponent. Honestly, for my taste, it's as good solo as it is with another player. And that, I think, is high praise. I'm happy to play with, uh, with other people, and indeed the activation system kind of comes into its own in that context because units can't activate full throttle every round whereas the AI can that's one of the advantages they have so that that aspect of nuance you kind of lose in the solo version anyway having a great time with four what remains now but... the, sorry now the scenarios that they do do they link together at all do they tell a story yes or do they oh really is it interesting at all the story is mostly first these two factions are fighting here, and then these two factions are fighting there, and then uh, these two factions are fighting over here. So there's no branching narrative on the on the basis of the fact of the linked scenarios, and you do get to level up your crew just in a very simple way of now I have access to the veteran version of this unit, and now I have access to the elite version of this unit. And the background story of the world is very compelling, but the setup for the individual scenarios is nice, but not exactly what I would call a fully fleshed out narrative. But quite frankly, in the context of a skirmish game, I'm okay with that. You know, comparing it to hate, just for no particular reason... I don't miss having to manage specific upgrades and remembering that this guy lost an arm a couple battles ago and she over there. Oh, sorry. I said she in the context of hate. That's a mistake. All dudes all the time in hate. Uh, but in the context of For What Remains, you have a, you have a gender diverse cast at least. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's the level of campaign that I'm looking for. It's the level of AI management that I'm looking for. It's just the right level of complexity that I want out of a game of this ilk. Because yes, there's a room in my heart for more complicated skirmish games. More on that in a moment. But For What Remains, especially for solo play, is just perfectly calibrated for what I'm, what I'm looking for. So. I've been seeing it avail- slightly more uh, widely available at a, a number of retailers. I think DVG has been stepping up their distribution lately because they fulfilled a number of Kickstarters. I think they just got a whole bunch of new printed stuff in. So I'm hopeful that more people will get access to For What Remains. You and I put Black Rose Wars back on the table because we had so much fun playing it the first time. And it didn't fail to please again. And even more so this time, I think, anyway, because people knew what they were in for. They knew what to do, how to you know, cycle the spells a bit better, how, you know, how the range worked and how the rooms sort of comboed with each other and what to do. I think it all in all it was a better play. 
there were two aspects where I really started to appreciate Black Rose Wars more. I appreciated it on the first play. I, as I said, this is finally the multiplayer free-for-all that doesn't really have Kingmaker issues, doesn't overstay its welcome, and doesn't make you feel aggrieved. It's like, why are you picking on me? I'm not winning. It's like, well, you were there, and it's time for me to blast your face off. It's like, oh, okay, well, fine. I'll just show up next turn and come back. That was all great. The two things that I really appreciated more was, number one, the tempo considerations, because you kind of pre-program your turn, but it's not in a strict pre-programming way. It's just you can't cast spell number two before you cast spell number one. That's that's the, the, the strict ordering of it. But nonetheless, you're constantly feeling the pressure to do everything all at once. And you have to make these very careful trade-offs about when you want to do what, knowing that any of your plans could be upset by a trap, a defense card, someone doing something to a room, etc., 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 that part was wonderful. I felt that pressure. The, the the choices were real. It was great. The second thing was you got to see some interesting combos because people were a little bit more familiar with the situation. It's like, okay, well, here's this event card. And one thing that I was able to do a couple times that made everyone very mad, and by the way, you know you're doing well and playing Black Rose Wars properly when everyone else at the table is very mad. But not seriously mad. Not like, why are you picking on me mad? More like, you've done a terrible thing. Well done. That is, you go take advantage of an event card that everyone was planning to take advantage of later, and then you cast a spell that buries the event card, meaning that it isn't active anymore. That was delightful. And a whole bunch of manipulations and the way that all the spells can mess with anything on the board in a way that doesn't feel overly chaotic. It's just the right level of chaos. I really enjoyed Black Rose Wars. It's not the kind of thing I want to play all the time, but I do appreciate that we now have a little bit more familiarity with the tempo and with the kind of effects that might happen. I was very glad that you were now in a better mindset, understanding what could and could not be stolen from you. That was not meant to be a put down. That was sincere. And I would happily play Black Rose Wars again. Yeah. I like the fact that even though it's done in almost every sort of fantasy campaign type game and or video game, that each deck had different ways you could play it. You could see the theme they were going for. Like I was, I, both times I play it, I just go heavy into one deck just because I want to see what cards are in there. I don't want to like diversify all over the place and you get a smattering. I want to see. Sure. Anyway, transmutation, it was all about, you know, going around, punching people really hard. Or if you looked at the other cards, it was all about destroying the rooms. It had all this whole thing about, you know, summoning these altars and blowing these altars up and blowing up rooms and doing all sorts of things. So I, I liked how, and I'm sure all the other decks are much the same where they have two or three or, you know, different ways that you can utilize or focus on certain ways to play. In the sort of uh, codex that goes into a little bit more detail about all the spells if you need to, there are little difficulty ratings for the different schools. And I think if I were to introduce the game fresh to new people again, I would give a little bit of a heads up on that because the more complicated, notionally the more complicated schools of magic, particularly schools of magic like illusion, have a variety of different effects. Illusion has traps that does damage or effects that manipulate rooms or defense cards that don't defend you, don't protect you from damage, but instead mess with whoever damaged you in the first place or a bunch of this, that, and the other. On the other hand, you have things like transmutation, which is slightly more straightforward. And then there's the school of destruction, which is incredibly straightforward. How would you like to do damage? Would you like to do damage through fire, through lightning, through ice, through a meteor swarm? Cool. That's what the school of destruction says. Anyway, so, uh, Final note from me on Black Rose Wars for now, some games really do a good job of setting an atmosphere where it's hard to take aggression seriously. And if you're going to have a game with lots of aggression, I encourage games to do that. We commented in Eclipse how sometimes, just by virtue of how the map shakes out, you end up in conflicts that seem unnecessary, and, and it can sometimes trigger the feelings in my little lizard brain that I'm being picked on for no good reason. I don't like when feelings like that happen. I don't like when I feel them. I don't like when someone else feels them at the table. But again, with Black Rose Wars, despite the amount of aggression, despite the amount of nonsense that gets thrown, after a little bit of acclimatization, it is hard to take anything too seriously in the sense of getting your feelings hurt. And that, I think, is definitely what you want out of a game of that ilk. It's true. I only have one negative thing to say, and it's that the last turn seemed a little gamey. I, I could see people looking around the table saying, because there's a bunch of victory points that get awarded at the end, you know, if you got the most trophies, which means you got the final kill, so everyone's counting up who got, has what and see if they can eke out the last final kill to go ahead or the last uh, quest or whatever. So, you know, it seemed a little gamey, just the, but it was only the last turn. That's a good so, observation. The, the, the one thing, just to add to that, the one thing in the last turn that didn't satisfy me is somebody could be sitting there with a whole bunch of your damage on them, You've spent a lot of time damaging them, which is a great way to get points, but they only score when they die. And if you don't game things out in a way that is somewhat alien to your logic the rest of the game, 
then you might leave some points on the table. And yeah, that that kind of gaminess, I think, is not to its strong suit. Yeah, which did, yeah, someone sat with, you know, only one hit point left. You yes. Know, which left out a bunch of points. It's true. And that was Black Crow's Wars. <laughs> I got to play another excellent skirmish game, this time a tabletop miniatures game called Horizon Wars Zero Dark. I've talked about this a couple times. This is the solo or co-op game by Roby Jenkins with a very brilliant dice system that is really, I think, the key draw of his two published game, his two most recently published games, Horizon Wars and Horizon Wars Zero Dark. Two very different games, but nonetheless in the same universe. I showed it to two new players, namely Huey and the Hanverker, and they came away with largely my same reactions to Horizon Wars, which is, I love the system, shame about the scenarios. I feel much better about the scenarios in Zero Dark than I do in Horizon Wars, but they basically, how do I put this delicately? They made a series of tactical calculations that did not allow their assets to execute the mission to their greatest possible case. They didn't play well. They they made it. They made a number of very... Look, it was their first time playing, and maybe you should blame me because I was the one who'd untopped them the game. Uh, but basically, they marched their troops down into the open and then got gunned down uh, to a large point. And then they got bogged down because then they were wounded, but they were still on the open. And so then there was a question of, should we go heal these guys? Should we go to cover? And so it kind of stagnated a little bit in that sense. Anyway, I'll take the blame for that. I really should have been guiding them. But again, as we made clear a couple weeks ago, I always err towards not telling people how to play the game and letting them discover things even when possibly I should exercise a slightly stronger hand. We were actually playing the first mission from the expansion to Zero Dark called Nemesis, which is a new campaign. Don't worry, don't worry. I was going to say, if it has Nemesis in it, it's got to be good. I could tell that you you were getting sort of a, a PTSD reaction to the word nemesis. You're getting a little twitchy my, in the eyes. I was going to say my eye will stop in a minute. I'm yeah. Sure. This is the first supplement to the miniatures game. It has new co-op missions, a new co-op campaign, a couple of new rules, a couple of new upgrades. And the new rules and upgrades are great. I will agree that the scenario was a little bit weird in that. And this is just one of those things that you sometimes encounter in tabletop miniature wargaming. The way you win the scenario is by subduing an objective in close combat. So far, so good. Two problems. Number one, if you kill the person in close combat, you lose the scenario. In fact, if you kill the person at all, you lose the scenario. So that part's fine. You have to be a little bit careful with your explosive weaponry. But if you roll too many successes in the close combat roll that you have to make in order to subdue her, then you lose. And oh, by the way, she is fighting back. And the second part is, the close combat system is kind of by design a little bit weird. Because it's a sci-fi tabletop miniatures game, very much like Infinity for many years. It's like, oh, hand-to-hand combat? Nah, not really a priority, which makes perfect sense. You've got sci-fi troopers with guns. You don't need to go high into detail about this. But the scenario ends, or at least near the end of the scenario, you have to subdue them in hand-to-hand combat because it's a kind of a cinematic way to resolve the plot elements of having to abscond with this high-value target. Now, in a more stereotypical, more board game or Euro design centric, you might say, well, maybe we don't want that to feed into some of our mechanically weaker elements of the rule set. Roby Jenkins is very much of the opinion, and his his opinion is this is very representative of a lot of miniatures game designers, like, well, but it leads to a good narrative, so that's the way it's going to be. I respect that. It's not necessarily my impression. Am I going to try to house rule things, which also is very much in the tradition of miniatures, uh, tabletop miniatures games, so that hand-to-hand combat works slightly differently? Probably. Should I have started with this scenario with these people? Possibly not. Should I have been a better game teacher? Definitely. So the fault is mine. I'm a huge fan of Horizon Wars Zero Dark. I've played solo a bunch of times. I still haven't played Versus. You can, you can indeed play it Versus. I love the resolution system. It is so clever and so neat. And the upgrade system is beautiful, and the customization is great. I, I have endlessly good things to say about Horizon Wars Zero Dark, even if the, some of the scenarios are a little bit uneven. And that was Horizon Wars Zero Dark. We also played, we played a great game that I was looking forward to. And it played out, There's also, sometimes there's good news, Mark. When a game plays out the way you want it to, and it, it's as fun as you want it to be, it's good news. And this is Underwater Cities. So it played out exactly the way you thought it would. I misheard. I thought it was, I thought the game was called Undercover Biddies. And I was expecting a kind of police procedural 21 Jump Street, but like Golden Girls. And so uh, I was very disappointed that that didn't happen. Well, I would have been, yeah, I can see your disappointment. Yep. I, I understand it. In this game, you have these cool domes and you're connecting them up and you're building little buildings that have this little engine building mechanic and you have this interesting action system where you're taking these actions on the board and if you play a card from your hand that matches the color, then you get a super action and the cards are all very different so it leads to very interesting combos and different, you know, planning out your turn and trying to eke out the most out of your turns and I really liked it. 
I had been avoiding undercover biddies because I had read from people that I trust, among them Chris Farrell, that this was like a three to four hour Euro optimization game. And I enjoy some three to four hour optimization games. In fact, I'm going to be talking about one in just a second. But the bar is so high for that kind of thing, especially when you have 90 to 120 minute things like splatter games and when barrage exists and all those other things. Like, I, you know, I the bar is really high. And the local people, the locals who play it, take about four hours to play the thing. So I was expecting it to be much longer than it was. We played with the expansion scenario that cuts a turn off the game. Uh, so I can't comment what it's like normally, but we took two hours for our, our, our first game, which is a fine length. It, it didn't, didn't feel over long. And I think Walker's exactly right. The activation system is kind of clever. It's basically a very, very crude worker placement system, coupled with an interesting card management thing, because there are three colors of actions and three colors of cards. You take an action corresponding to the other card, you play a card, and something cool happens. And the game, to its credit, cycles cards almost alarming right. You're constantly getting new cards, and cards are coming out, so that if you don't have what you need, you'll probably be able to get what you need. And it's the trade-off of, do I do this ideal action even though I don't have a card to pair with it? Or do I do this suboptimal action with a better card? That part I thought was great. That part was really neat, and it was especially helpful given that the rest of the game was pretty bog-standard, spend resources to build buildings who will give you income, and then you get points at the end of the day kind of thing. Which is not a huge criticism, but the rest of the game did feel pretty generic, theme notwithstanding. Yeah, and I love how the the board is sort of divided up. They had, like, the red actions that were really good, but the red cards were really crappy. And then the green one, this is not the right colors, but you'll get what I understand. And then the green ones are medium actions, medium cards. And then the... Well, it was, it was red, yellow, green. And then the other color was really crappy actions, but really good cards. Anyway... I really like how that worked out. I like the fact that they gave you objectives at the end of your board that you sort of had to branch out and gave you big benefits. Things I didn't like was like the huge income. I get it didn't it didn't happen at the end of every turn, so I guess it wasn't so so bad. The it game, was pretty, it was pretty tedious, yes, and it was fairly tedious, but kind of interesting. Like if you got a really cool engine going and you had all the stuff coming in, I know it was kind of neat. Sure. So here's a question, Walker, and I'm, I'm being very sincere. I'm not. This is not like one of those gotcha journalism things. I've heard you disparagingly refer to a number of specifically Euro games as busy work. Resources come in, resources go out, whatever, whatever. And specifically, one of the games that I've heard you say this about is Through the Ages. In fact, you talked about it last week. And I respect the fact that there's lots of things to dislike about Through the Ages. It's not a perfect game by any stretch of the imagination. But I was getting a kind of sort of resources in, resources out, managey sort of like, okay, here's the, I have, I generate seven plasteel and I put it in a corner, blah, blah, blah. And one of the things that Underwater Cities definitely does not have is much player interaction at all. There's occasional incidental blocking. I go to a space that you really wanted, but I'm not going there because you wanted it. I'm going there because I wanted it. And oh, interaction. In what way does a game like Through the Ages strike you as busy work? But a game like Underwater Cities does not. Just because of the ramp up. Like in Through the Age, it's almost all, it's the same. I feel it's the same almost every turn. Whereas in Underwater Cities, I thought it was very tight the very first few turns. So it was very, you know, you really needed certain resources and it wasn't a huge amount. And I agree that near the end, it was definitely busy work. It was like, okay, I... You usually always had the resources you needed. Maybe you're a couple short, so you take an action, a couple actions first that gave you other stuff and just happened to give you the other resources and said, well, I need that anyway. And then, like I said, near the next couple turns, definitely busy work. But the first half was nice and tight and interesting. Huh. And so by implication, you don't have that same experience when playing a game like Through the Ages? No. That's that's very strange. Okay, we must have... I've never played the game with you, right? So I'm not in a position to comment of the experiences you're having. But my experiences of a game of Through the Ages, I'm always feeling some degree of resource tightness, as opposed to near the end of Underwater Cities, where, yeah, I had more or less anything I wanted, and I was just limited to the three actions I could do. And during the entire last age of the game, basically, the third era after the the, the, the second production round, it was very much a question of, 
well, I can do this action, which will get me four points, or this action, which will get me five. And I do the calculation, okay, I better go do the one that gets me five. And that's fine. I'm willing to do that, and that, that, that's an okay Euro thing. And like I say, I, I, I didn't, I enjoyed Underwater Cities. In fact, I probably think it's one of uh, Vladimir Sookie's best. Uh, but generally speaking, my experience with Vladimir Sookie's designs is I like them. They're good. And I'm, I'm willing to play them, but after two or three times, I feel like I'm done with them. Because I've seen them all before, and the one or two unique tricks that it pulls out is not enough to bear the rest of this, the sameness and the same of the resource churn and the highly competitive Euro efficiency market. I, I certainly felt that way about Shipyard, for example. I really enjoyed Shipyard the first time I played it. I thought it was great. Rondels upon rondels upon rondels. Get to race a little boat, and then it was all like, well, you know, four points here, five points there. Okay, fine. So I would I would probably play Underwater Cities again, but given that scope and given that I'm probably, perhaps unfairly, assuming that it's going to run out of gas for me in a play or two, I'm not particularly keen to see it again. And just to finish off the busy work thing, I think with the proper theme, it, it's not as bad. Like in Through the Ages, it's all just ore, right? Ore does everything. It's very not very thematic, where in... Underwater cities, you have different kinds, and it makes sense that this building does this, and this building makes that, and how it works together is a little more thematic than in other games where it's just push these resources because they're resources. I am just now coming to the realization that you and I are very different people. What? Just because not- I could never remember what building generated what. I could barely remember that the labs generated science. Past that, I was all like, well, okay, so the primary resource they develop, I had no problem remembering, but then they develop a secondary resource if they're advanced, and then they develop even more of the secondary resource if there's two of them in the same city. These are all truths. <laughs> and that was Undercover Biddies by Vladimir Suki, published here, at least, by Rio Grande Games. And now on to the news and why it doesn't exist. So I wanted to tell you about finishing time. It's a great new game by Freeman Freeze, but our copy was missing pieces, so we didn't get to play it. Our copy wasn't finished in time. It's uh... <laughs> so a quick a quick aside. Hey, th- you asked me I, to do a podcast, Walker. This I've is go- your idea. I think I've, I've I've gone many years up to just this past few months without having games with any issues, like buying games, opening them up. Everything's been fine. I think it was way back. How long ago did uh, Warrior Knights come out? Oh my! Right by Fantasy Flight. That yeah. was the last time that I got two of one piece and and there none was of another a game. Yeah, game issue. So anyway, so this this last few months it was uh, Taverns of Tiefenhall. I got a die that had a blank face, and uh, Project Elite came with doubles of one cards and none of another. So. I just now got my replacement mini for Project Elite. One of my minis had one arm. I submitted to take it right after I got the Kickstarter, and just now I got a little package from China. Well, I'm hoping my little package comes soon then with my cards so we can actually try the expansion. That would be great. And oh, yes, and and come come to our Board Game Geek Guild. There's some great conversations going on there. Great people love our guild. And we can say that because we do not participate much. I, I, well, that being said, I participate as much as I can. I'm just, <laughs> I, I'm just saying I, you know, I have lots of games to play, lots of editing well, no, this is, and research. And, and just to be clear, work. it's it's not that I don't like the people at the Guild. I, I read everything that gets posted there. Yes. It's just that I think the Guild is better when it is people not are like, we talk enough on the pod. I certainly talk enough on the podcast. The world doesn't need more of me talking. So I, I mostly just like reading what other people have to say. Exactly. And all of it is good, in my opinion. So I've only got two bits of news, and they're very podcast-specific. This is an episode number that is a multiple of five, and so we're going to talk about the Patreon. I have good news about the Patreon, in addition to the fact that we've been churning out exclusive content on the reg. And I would just like to say, we don't like talking about it, we don't like advertising, but I'm very, very proud of a lot of the stuff we put up there. For the next few weeks, we have a special going. You can now pay for a year in advance. And the reason why we're doing this is because a number of people sign up at the 10 or $20 level and they want their free game or they want their rules explanation or they want to commission the specific video. But the response is always the same. It's like, well, you just joined. You haven't given us any money. So maybe we'll wait a few months. But now you can, you can buy a year in advance and you'll get two months free if you do that. And this is at any pledge level. So please take advantage of this October madness. We think that October is the month of Arkhipov Day. And if President's Day can sell mattresses, we think Arkhipov Day should sell Patreon pledges to podcasts. On that topic, Arkhipov Day. We are now just about a week off from Arkhipov Day on October 27th. 
It is the 58th anniversary of Vasily Arkhipov saving the entire world, no exaggeration. Please read up on Vasily Arkhipov. He saved your life. He deserves at least that much. And I hope you'll be joining me on the 27th of October, wishing people a happy Arkhipov Day. And then if any of you say, what is Arkhipov Day? You can tell them about this made-up holiday because all holidays are made up and Vasily Arkhipov deserves recognition. Anyway, that's all I have to say about that. And that is the news and why it doesn't exist. Now, on to our topic of the week, which is reckoning with war and violence, a discussion of what responsibilities designers and players have to respect to modeling war and death. I think about this a lot, probably more than some other people do, and this is partially because it was a professional interest of mine. One of the courses that I taught in university was terrorism, war, and death. We talked about things like pacifism. We talked about things like insurgent movements. We talked about things like just war theory. And I think it's very important to think about what we consume and how we consume it. I think this matters. And if I didn't think this were true, I probably wouldn't be doing a podcast, because if what we consumed as hobbyists didn't matter, I wouldn't feel the need to talk about them. Agreed. One thing just to start off, sort of like humor was sort of invented to make help people get through difficult times and horrific things. And I think we can sort of put games into that sort of in that sort of cabinet as well. Not that it makes light of it, but it just helps people cope with these horrific things and, and sort of introduces it to them in a light way at first and sort of this is what happened and that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think in very much the same – I think that's a really good analogy because I'm of the opinion that although many jokes are inappropriate, there is no subject matter itself where all humor is inappropriate. I think it matters on the, on the type of humor. There's no subject that's automatically out of bounds for humor just in the same way that there's no subject that's automatically in bounds for all humor. It's very case-dependent. And similarly, sometimes the way to cope with the enormity of something is to crack a joke. Sometimes a good way to appreciate the enormity of something is through play, is through the sort of reenactment, the sort of gentle reenactment that we do in the context of gaming. I think that's a a very good analogy. But how they do it matters, right? Oh, yes. (laughs) So they say uh, authenticity equates to respect, right? So as long as you you know, do your research, shows the amount of research you've done on the subject, right? Make sure you get your, your, all your line, all your ducks in a row, you know, respect what happened in that era and, and everything, try to represent every, everything that happened in that era, not just, it's a lot like, you know, uh, Hollywood, right? They have these war movies Mm. and it's all very exciting. It's all, you know, action packed where real war is very boring and there's a lot of sitting around. There's a lot of nothing going on, right? So this is why, you know, you know these games, it's always active, always crazy, always mm. things happening. Well, I, I don't know if I would agree that it's – you have to represent the totality of everything. I think actually sometimes a focused perspective can be very helpful. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, in, in, in wargaming – and this is true whether we're talking about consens or, or Euro games about war or Ameritrash games about war – the scale can vary considerably, right? A game like Undaunted Normandy is very different from a game like Undaunted North Africa because they're in very different scales. And games like that are, in turn, extremely different from a game like Quartermaster General, which is in turn is an entirely different scale. And I think that choosing a different scope and a different scale can actually help tell the story. Because I want to flag, as we frequently do, I bang this drum all the time, but I think it's it, because it deserves, deserves repeating. My, I think the game that it, the best game about war is Meltwater. And... One of the reasons why it's so good is because despite the fact that it's basically science fiction, it manages to bear down on the simultaneously the barbarity and the absurdity, the borderline comic absurdity of certain kinds of armed conflicts, despite because precisely because of its focus, precisely because you're in a situation where you have to starve these civilians to death because they're not your color. And... And I mean what I say, that's horrific, and it's also almost comic. Yeah, and where you feel just terrible on both sides. You feel terrible for winning. Exactly. And I think that one of the reasons why it does that so well is because it takes a a historical counterfactual to show the ridiculousness of an actual military doctrine. Because the entire game was inspired by a quote from NORAD Air Command about how restraint was stupid and the point of war is to kill more of the enemy. If, if The specific line is, if at the end of the war there's one Soviet left and two Americans, we win. And 
Meltwater does a great job of demonstrating and making the players feel that imperative and then feeling terrible about it. And so sometimes it's not about research, although Meltwater is well-researched. Sometimes it's not about specificity because Meltwater is a little bit abstract. But sometimes it's about that level of evocation that I think really does the hobby credit. Like I am sincerely happy about the hobby because things like Meltwater exist. It's true. And, well, you touched on one thing I want to talk about, too. You talked about the commander saying, you know, war is all about winning. And one thing we have to remember is the winners get to write the history books. Yes. And all of these war games that we play are based on the winners and and their view on how the war was won and their view on how the war was fought. I agree entirely. We have a bias towards how things actually happened. And as a result, any historical war game tries to sometimes pound a square peg into a round hole just to make sure that things happen exactly the way they did. And I agree that it's problematic if a historical war game can't accommodate for what actually happened historically. But that's one of the reasons why I really like strategic war games like Triumph and Tragedy or like Cataclysm, because they acknowledge, hey, things could have been really different rather than just this myopia of everything necessarily with the inevitable force of history had to happen the way they did. Because what that does is you're exactly right, that 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 legitimizes a certain victor's narrative. And what it also does is it undercuts the extent to which armed conflict is a result of conscious choices that people make. And at their best, games can highlight this. These things are happening. This conflict happens. These deaths, simulated though they may be, are as a result of a choice that I made. And historically, that is true too. And that's one of the things when I was teaching pacifism, not to get on the pacifism soapbox, because this is not about me trying to convince people to be be anti-war pacifists. But one of the things in pacifism discourse that's so hard to get people to acknowledge is that the way things happened was not an inevitability. It was not written in stone that all these wars had to happen the way they did. They could have happened in a lot of different ways. And that's one of the reasons why I think war games are really good at articulating some alternative visions of history. Another way to look at why war games are bad is the dehumanization part of it. When when they're training soldiers, there's all sorts of dehumanization things going on. In order to get uh, humans to kill other humans, something has to be done, right? You have to show them that they're the enemy and that they're not quite people and it's okay to kill them because they're going to kill you if they don't. And sometimes... Uh, Video games and war games might do that to the players as well. You know, you just, you're just used to it as well. I'm attacking you here and I'm killing all your guys. And not only are the soldiers getting killed, but a lot of these games, uh, they don't really tell you about the horrific toll that it takes on the civilian population and stuff like that. I agree completely, 100%. And a part of that, a corollary of that is that very often in entertainment, and this is true of, of all the media that you identified, we tend to focus on the hardware. We tend to focus on things like the guns, the air, the warplanes, tanks. Those things are cool. And even as an anti-war pacifist, I find those things really cool. It's one of the things that I love about Macross, just to broaden, because even though it's incredibly misogynistic and some of the things in Macross are very hokey, I still defend Macross 7. I will fight you in real life if you, well, I guess I'm not a very good pacifist now, am I? But I have my limits. Macross 7 is where I draw the line. It juxtaposes this enthusiasm for military technology with characters that are pacifistic and overtly pacifistic. That's one of the things that I really like about it, and that, that sort of uh, tension is really good. And I agree with you that writing civilians out of the story is one of the things we do in military narratives. And I therefore very much appreciate war games when they take seriously this notion of not just the armed combatants, because we don't want to dehumanize the enemy, as you identified, but also all the non-combatants as well. Another interesting game that did this was there's an old game called Firefight, Urban Conflict, and the Iron Age. And the one side was all sorts of, you know, space marines, military guys. They all had interesting names. But the other side had all sorts of silly names. And they had popcorn guns, and there were and there were silly gremlins and stuff. And this was sort of like in the story that that's what, these these marine guys called them oh in order to make light so that you know so they wouldn't be so scared to get out there and you know what i mean and it, it was a very interesting way to do it that is cool i'm actually very disappointed that uh, more games don't take this seriously like i was very dis- now admittedly i haven't played the game there's a game called dawn of the peacemakers which was nominally about player characters playing a co-op game trying to stop a war but the way you stop the war the victory conditions for all the scenarios aren't about ceasing the fight. It's about making sure that the fight is prolonged as much as possible so as to maximize casualties on both sides so they both get really tired. 
And that, I, I just, it really sapped any enthusiasm I had for, for playing the game. And yes, there are alternate ways to end a scenario, but like things like, also not necessarily that I would approve of these things, but other things like assassinating the military leadership so that the soldiers might disperse. No, 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 that's a loss condition because that's not the way you, you win. This, this also emphasizes the importance of good scenario design. I talked about good scenario design in skirmish games, but the, the thing that I like least about the Commands and Colors games, particularly in terms of how it models warfare, is that all the scenarios, victory conditions, are about casualties. You win when you get a certain number of casualties. And I don't like that as an emphasis, both because it's a focus on the morbid and because it kind of presents War is a race to rack up casualties, which I think does a whole bunch of disservice and warps thinking in a lot of ways. I, I therefore actually kind of prefer the victory condition in Battle Lore 2nd Edition, which is arguably Commands and Colors game, which is about, you know, this is a strategic ad- objective. You want to hold this st- strategic objective, which seems a little less bloodthirsty. Which is better than the first edition, which was just straight up, you yeah. destroyed that unit, you get a victory point. Yeah, exactly. This leads in, the scenario design leads into another... Almost my last point was uh, it's good. It's a good teaching mechanism. Games, right? If you have the proper scenarios and it's all written out very well, it's a very interesting way to learn what happened in history or what could have happened if the slightly thing was changed, or you know, what if they had the proper supplies? What if you know the reinforcements arrived in time? And it's a very interesting way to uh, either reenact or change history. I agree. I think that you can take it to too much of an extreme. Like I hear war gamers talk about how much insight they feel they've gotten into a certain historical event just by playing a war game. I think it's very much in the same way that a good movie can inspire you to do more reading. I think it can be a jumping off point. A lot of these uh, consens, a lot of these war games, or even something with just enough attention to historical detail, like a quartermaster general game. It's like, oh, this card refers to the Schlieffen plan. What was the Schlieffen plan? It's like, well, let's talk about the Schlieffen plan. And, or you could go read, just read the Wikipedia article on the Schlieffen plan, which was, you know, Again, on the topic of the absurdity of war, the Schlieffen plan was kind of weird and, and grimly comic in a, in a sort of horrific, horrific way. To sort of tie in a lot of the things that we've been talking about, there's a difference between portrayal and endorsement, right? Well, that, it's funny. You're, you're just leaning into the same. I have, I have enforcing cover-up. It's not really cover-up, but I wasn't going to say well, that. Well, a whitewash. Yeah. yeah, whitewash. Yeah. yeah that's why yeah. I, I wasn't going to say that out loud, but that's what I've written it, and I was going to just say it in, in a different way. Enforcing either A, the designer's, way they think history should have played out or or what they think the reasons why this particular side was fighting or was at war or did certain things or why nations did certain things. Yeah, it's one of my key beefs with uh, Labyrinth, the War on Terror. Labyrinth, the War on Terror, again, either because of the view of the designer of Volko Rinke or just because of the bias that I talked about. Well, thing it happened this way historically, so therefore this must be the way things happened, places an undue importance on invading Iraq. There's this notion that, again, and regardless of what you think about the invasion of Iraq, it was not an inevitable thing, and it was not the only thing to be done. There were other things that could have happened. And Labyrinth spends a lot of time in the gameplay elements and in the cards encouraging the invasion of Iraq, which is a strange way to model history, especially having lived through that period. You know, this difference between portrayal and endorsement as is, is shot through in a lot of war games. There was a controversy back in the first publication of Upfront, where the cover was perceived to be glamorizing an SS officer. And that was weird internal decisions as to why the artist decided to do that. But it's one thing to play as the SS. It's one thing to play as the Wehrmacht. And I've done that many a time. And so have you. But there are ways to do it in a respectful, detailed, historically conscious way. And then there are ways to glamorize the panther and glamorize the ti- the tiger and the Hugo Boss uniforms and things like that. And the difference is often subtle. And fortunately, I haven't encountered many games that are all rah-rah Wehrmacht. I have encountered lots of war gamers who are rah-rah Wehrmacht, and they creep me out. <laughs> well, Secret Hitler sort of puts an uh, emphasis on on voting Hitler in as as the chancellor. So that's sort of why I sort of always try to veer away from, you know, it's, it was, you know, pacing it like, a, I'm, I don't know if we've, we've talked, we haven't really talked about that at all, where games paced this war theme on, a historical war theme on a game yep. when it's unnecessary. Yep. Well, it's weird. Secret Hitler is, is complicated. I've, 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 I felt much better about Secret Hitler when I was first playing it than a few years on. Uh, primarily because the whole secret aspect rubs me the wrong way. Because historically speaking, there's this bias that we fall into where 
some politician says a whole bunch of things that are genuinely problematic. And people say, oh, well, politicians exaggerate. And then the politician goes and does something genuinely problematic. And then the response is, oh, well, how could we have known? And the answer is, well, you could have taken them seriously when they said publicly that they were going to do very specific things. And that's one of the things in the narrative of Secret Hitler that I don't like. There were people in Germany who were like, well, you know, I, how are we to know that, that, that Hitler as chancellor was going to do all these things? Well, he, I mean, for one thing, he wrote a book. And for another thing, he was very clear about it. So this whole thing is like, oh, Hitler could be anywhere is, is ridiculous on its face and problematic. I do like, though, in the context of Secret Hitler, we're not really talking about war here, but well, I guess we are. That the implication is that Democrats and and uh, small d Democrats, people who believe in democracy and people who believe in human rights, have to be vigilant because it is through their unwitting and sometimes stupid collaboration or inaction that terrible people get power. So that part of the historical narrative I actually quite like. But yeah, the, I think the legacy of Secret Hitler is mixed in, in, in my estimation. And look, sometimes good designers do well and sometimes they don't like this is one of the differences between twilight struggle and imperial struggle i think i thought the twilight struggle was not as good as meltwater but kind of in the same vein as sort of satire of the domino theory and containment theory and they were very clear in the designer's notes these are geopolitical absurdities that we have decided to model in our game come play the the absurdity Whereas in Imperial Struggle, they fell victim to the trappings of, oh, the pomp and majesty of these Imperial powers who are murdering Indians by the millions and who do wonderful things and have lovely fine clothes and have marvelous armies who rampage through and disenfranchise indigenous people and appropriate their land. Anyway, and nary a mention of that in anywhere in the designer's notes. So a similar thing for what it's worth, and then I'll shut up, is happening with respect to John Company. We played John Company and the second edition of John Company, Cole Worley has shared some of the art on BoardGameGeek and it's contemporaneous political cartoons of the era making fun of the people of John Company. Because even at the time, there were people in the 19th century who knew what was going on in the East, in the East Indies was terrible and a bad idea. And so, you know, it's undercutting them, and it's like these people who wield such power are being idiots and monsters. And a lot of people on Board Game Geek show up and say, I prefer the original art. It just seems so much more grand and dignified. And Cole Worley's response is, that's not the point of my game. The point of my game is that you're monsters and you're doing terrible things. And I want to emphasize that in my game with this art that makes fun of you. Again, this difference that Dan Thoreau identified between portrayal and endorsement. You can make play at war. When it starts glamorizing it, when it starts ennobling it, that's where things get dangerous. And I hear this about the Wehrmacht. I hear this about the Confederate Army. I hear this about the Canadian Army. I hear this about armed forces all the time. You fall victim to the pageantry, you ignore all the human toll that's involved, and that's when things get problematic and dangerous. And honestly, that's what fascism is. Fascism is a glorification of violence. And this is just as a final political note, this is why the whole punch a Nazi thing amongst various progressive movements strikes me as the height of stupidity. Because the moment you acknowledge that violence is the way to resolve political discourse, you're not an anti-fascist, you're a fascist. That's a good note to end it on. I do have one question, though, for you, Walker. Sure. I, we can go into there. Let's. I'll, I'll start off. So th there could be an argument to be uh, how much time should you wait until you start making a game about a particular uh, conflict or you know fight? Right? Should should there be a certain grace period before you start reenacting those battles? Right? And mm -hmm. what the game was a GMT game called A Distant Plane. A Distant Plane. It was about the Afghanistan campaign, yeah. Yeah, and I played it many years ago, and it was very shortly after, if and it was definitely still going it, on at still, the time, it's, it's, and it's still going it's on still now. It's still going on now, yeah. And and this game had actual photographs, like live photographs of soldiers that could have still been there, or 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 you know, I mean, and, and I think it it was it was too real for me, and I it felt made me feel uncomfortable. I see. So it was the reality of it that. Yeah, it's not. It's not as though it's like, oh my god, this. You know, I didn't realize this was actually happening. And sure, that, it was just like I don't think these people should be. You know, I, I should. We shouldn't be even with their permission. Uh, yeah, but I, I highly doubt that. Maybe in this particular game, they had permission. I highly doubt uh, these Afghan people were saying, "Hey, we're making a GMT game. Can we oh. use your photo?" <laughs> I don't <laughs> think that happened. That's an excellent point. No, no, entirely. You're entirely right. Uh, and this is this is just a blind spot for me. This is just my imperial uh, racist assumption. It's like, well, I know that in the case of of war game design, they often get the soldiers' permission. But did they get the permission of all the Afghans that that happened to be in the side? 
Probably not. That's an excellent point. And it's the same with all the World War II movies you've seen. They, they do, you know, group shots of soldiers or, or trenches or sometimes atrocities that happen. And, and the families of these people haven't given permission for these photos to be in the game mm. or any of this stuff. And sometimes it's pl- problematic and, and, and only if, if it's unnecessary, then, the, the, then these pictures shouldn't be in there. That's why I'm mm. always for cartoonish depictions or, mm. but as long as they're human, I'm, I'm, I'm increasingly getting weary of these, you know, pigs in, you know, World War One garb or we've seen it before. Even in Secret Hitler, they do the same sort of thing. They have lizards, lizards and, yeah. and sort of that. And I, I'm not comfortable with that either. Hmm. Yeah. It, it, it's complicated, right? Because in the case of Secret Hitler, it was an attempt to satirize and mock. In the context of that Kickstarter game we talked about, Pigs of War, I agree with you. In, in, I, I didn't mention it at the time, but upon reflection when preparing for this topic, I'm like, I'm not sure I'm cool with recasting World War One as, you know, a porcine conflict. Like, that just seems to uh, be unnecessarily flip and unnecessarily insulting to the men and women who died in the conflict. So, I, you know, I'm... It's quite... very common. Like, there's many, yeah. many games that do this. Yeah. I think there's a balance to be struck. Because I agree with you that there are problems with respect to depictions of real people, but the more cartoony you make it, that might seem to encourage a certain kind of dissociation of the violence to too high a degree, right? It's a balance. I shouldn't, say, I shouldn't have said cartoony. I should have said like either animated or hand-drawn, I guess, sure. is what I really meant. That seems reasonable. There is one game that I that I do play and I do enjoy despite the fact that it is about things that I often think are terrible, and it does have pictures of actual soldiers, and that is Warfighter. But the soldiers here particularly are credited. It says this is this particular person. They've given their permission because a lot of people in the armed services, are, you know, play games like this. We know a couple. Agreed. It's not uncommon. And when it comes to an individual signing away their own rights, I'm certainly not in a position to say, well, you shouldn't be doing that. And it's, it's their own decisions to make. But I agree with you. The, the, the graphic depictions of these acts is a huge, huge problem. And I think that going on too extreme on either end, either photorealistic or too cartoonish, can be a serious problem. So I'm, I'm of two minds on that. Thank you very much for that, uh, that insight. I never thought about it in those terms. That was a good discussion, Mark. Well, let's not pat ourselves on the back too hard there, Walker. No, I don't I don't mean it that way. I just meant it was good to bring up is what I meant. Oh, okay. I'm glad you thought so. I was very interested to hear your thoughts. So that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For a more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. Highly recommended. And you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigman. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.